We have a very special announcement that I'd like to share with you on this podcast. The Canons got accepted into the DOC NYC Film Festival that runs next month in New York City. We are incredibly honored and humbled to have this opportunity to finally share our movie with you. It will be available on streaming if you go through the website for DOC NYC. Fortunately, it is sold out in person. So if you're in the New York area, we may get a second showing. We're not sure, but you definitely can't watch the premiere, which is scheduled for Sunday, November 14th at 1.30 p.m. Thank you for all your support and for being patient and sharing this journey with us. We love you all. This podcast may contain some strong language not suitable for all ages. I got to tell you, the uh, slogan hockey is for everyone. I truly believe that they stole that from us, from Fort DuPont. This week on the Godfather of Hockey podcast, we have Coach Robert Primus. Rob has been a coach with the Fort DuPont Cannons since 1996. When he first showed up, he didn't have skates, didn't know how to skate. Coach threw him on the ice and said, good luck, kid. And he's still sticking around. 25 years later, he's got two kids that are on the team. In 29 years, he's also worked on Capitol Hill, largely been a civil servant most of his career. On January 6, 2021, he was actually in the Capitol Hill building during the insurrection and was getting sworn into his new position at the Transportation Board. He will share that, his life with the Cannons, his life on Capitol Hill, and some of his life, you know, getting to know us. Take it away, Robert Primus. He's the godfather of hockey in D.C. The godfather. If I don't do me, that's the death in me, the death in me. Calm through the storm, watch the enemy, the enemy. Check the score, I came back from a deficit, a deficit. Working on my game, so it's well, Rob, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Uh, I hope you're having a wonderful uh, summer thus far. Uh, it's been a great summer. Uh, interesting, of course, it's still a COVID summer. So as much as things are opening up, we're still a little cautious. You know, I can't wait to get out. And uh, honestly, hopefully the fall things change so we can actually get on the ice. Start skating. Uh, the kids are excited. Uh, I'm a little tired of them playing hockey in the basement and tearing up uh, the walls and, and everything else. So but uh, it's been a good summer. Something that I guess is kind of running through the program is that a lot of these coaches, they find themselves volunteering or being part of the uh, coaching staff. And then before you know it, they've got their own kids in the program. Absolutely. I mean, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, I've got my oldest two, uh, Benjamin, who's 12, and Jacob, who's 10. Uh, they've been skating and been in the program for uh, several years. And and uh, my newest and youngest skater, Aaron Francis, he's five, but you know, we're going to try to have him on the ice at some point this year, too. Talking to coach, he's just raring to go. I mean, he obviously knows, you know, masks and everything, but he's just like, well, I just, as soon as they tell me I'm back, I'm back, you know, like. Absolutely. So <laughs> yeah. Coach not at the rank is a fish out of water. I mean, I, mean, mm -hmm. I think uh, it hurt him quite a bit last year, you know, more so than any other coach or even any other uh, player not to have been at the rink. I would venture to say that that is the first time uh, since the program started, you know, back in the mid seventies that he was not at the rink, you know, during hockey season. And I can only imagine what it must've been like for him to sit there in the, you know, in the middle of November and December and January, at, you know, right at the heart of, of hockey season. And, you know, you're sitting at home. And, you know, not where you want to be, not where you always been. You know, we talk about not being at work or kids not being at school, but not being able to be in a place that they love in a place that, you know, defined in a sense that, you know, him over the last, you know, 40 plus years. I mean, that's got to be hard. 
gonna be really hard. So Rob, let's let's kind of take a step back and, and talk about the process of maybe a little bit about your life and how you came upon the cannons. Um, can you kind of share with us like what you do outside of you know volunteering for the Fort DuPont Cannons as a coach? Currently, I am uh, the vice chairman of the Surface Transportation Board, and that is a small independent federal agency. As a member of the board, there are five board members, and we regulate uh, the freight rail industry in the United States, as well as passenger rail. January 6, 2021 was a very significant day in American history. What were you doing? Well, uh, interestingly enough, I was actually that morning uh, being sworn in in the Capitol into my new position uh, by the House Majority Whip, uh, uh, James Clyburn. And uh, I'll tell you, it, that whole day was surreal because uh, when I was being sworn in, you know, it was literally just another day. And uh, we finished the ceremony around noon and we went back to uh, the Majority Whip's office, which is still in the Capitol. And, you know, we were sitting there talking and he and his chief of staff had said, had said well, why don't you hang around? And so you can sit and watch, you know, the proceedings on the floor and go grab lunch. And I actually had another meeting, so I declined. But before I left, I actually took a picture out of the, the Majority Whip's uh, office overlooking the National Mall. And, you know, if you see that picture today, I mean, just an ordinary picture. Uh, you know, it doesn't look like anybody protesting. You know, people were milling about. but it's it's hard to imagine that less than uh, two hours later, you know, bedlam was happening. And luckily enough, I I made I was out of the Capitol. I I, I did not leave the Capitol complex in time. Uh, unfortunately, when I tried to leave is when uh, the police found the uh, bombs uh, at the uh, Republican National Committee and the Democratic uh, National Committee. So they had closed off all the roads. So actually, I had to go back into the congressional offices and I, I was there for the next seven hours. What is it about politics that drew you in? Well, I gotta tell you, um, I'm not a politician. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was a eager uh, federal employee staffer who, who worked uh, uh, in that, that political world. Uh, people always ask me, would I ever run for office? Right. And I'm very quick to tell them no. Hmm. You know, it, it's just, uh, you know, the, the, the grind and the expectations and it, it's a lot, it's a lot. But I will tell you that I love every minute of being on Capitol Hill. It's been, it was amazing because it was also, I felt that I was part of a process that was part of an opportunity to promote change. That, you know, I really enjoyed meeting with people around the country. Uh, it, it, was, it was fantastic. And, you know, it really deep into my appreciation for the democratic process, that people from around the country, no matter you know, their station in life, could come to Congress, come to Capitol Hill, and petition their members of Congress. And, and I deeply respected that, and I gave them the respect uh, when they came in and when they met it, and you know, the opportunity to work for change and work to help folks who are in need, uh, not just in our district, around the country, really was clear. And, yeah, I never envisioned, honestly, I didn't go to school for politics, never envisioned it. Uh, I tell people that the good Lord is a practical joker. So he made me go into one, think I was going to, you know, major and, and work in one field. And I ended up, again, for almost 30 years uh, working in, in the uh, policy and political field. And again, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, when you can meet and, and befriend people like John Lewis, 
not even a political icon, just, you know, a, a, a human icon. You know, people like that, it's just, it's just amazing. You know, Coach Neil Henderson is a human icon as well that we that we felt was really important in getting that story across within our film. I think that, uh, unfortunately, someone stole the title uh, a few years ago, but Coach is definitely a hidden figure. Uh, honestly, I mean, he is an icon, but you know he wouldn't say that. But I think he he is. Uh, when you consider what he's done, not just through with the cannons, but over the course of his life, uh, here's a guy that was constantly breaking down barriers. Uh, you know, someone who who embraced ice hockey. You know, not in Canada, uh, as as Willie O'Ree did, or or Herb Carnegie or all these other, but he embraced it in the United States, in Washington, D.C., where it wasn't as strong and as prevalent and, and the culture wasn't there. And growing up black in Washington, D.C., in the 1950s, uh, you know, you had to stand out, you know, when he's skating at the U-Line Arena. You know, you had to be able to face, you know, the scrutiny and the questions and the looks. Uh, and yet he's, he continued. And playing not just in Washington, but playing locally in Baltimore, you know, joining the Air Force, going out to Utah and playing out there, playing and coaching. You know, most people don't realize that, you know, in the 60s, he was, a, he was playing and coaching. You know, unheard of. I mean, most people probably at that time, I don't know if there was another black player slash coach in professional hockey at that time. Uh, he was also a coach to young children in Utah. Uh, there are pictures that I've seen that have totally blown me away of him surrounded by, you know, in the 60s, you know, some blonde haired and blue eyed, you know, Utah residents. And how mind blowing is that where, you know, you've got a, a black ice hockey coach, you know, around the time of the civil rights bill and the voting rights bill. And yet he was doing it. And then you fast forward to, you know, the mid seventies, you know, again, less than 10 years removed from the 68 riots that tore apart DC, black DC and the NHL new to, to Washington DC too, by probably a year or two. And you have a guy who says, Hey, I'm going to start an ice hockey program, you know, in a predominantly black neighborhood. And I'm going to be bringing in probably predominantly black kids to play. I mean, not to say that, that, you know, they would have looked at him like he was crazy, but I'm sure majority of people looked at him like he was crazy. And yet he overcame that. And now, again, you know, we are blessed to see his success. We're blessed to see him, you know, being the first Black to be inducted into the USA Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, there's so many firsts for him. And to be honest with you, he's been so humble about it that you wouldn't even recognize him. You wouldn't even know. Most people don't even know that you know, he has the oldest uh, continuous uh, community, black community, minority community ice hockey program in North America. And I would, you know, venture to say the world. He just goes about doing his business and his business is educating uh, kids to the joys and to the love of hockey and, and to the game of hockey. And so I can't think of a more fitting definition of icon you know, to, to bestow upon him. And, and, you know, yes, you know, John Lewis, you know, uh, served our country well in, in the civil rights struggle in terms of opening up 
opportunities and, and leading, you know, and bleeding, uh, uh, you know, to support our freedom. But I think, you know, you know, coach, you know, in the world of hockey has, has sort of led that, that same sort of civil rights fight that, you know, we have a right to play, you know, we have a right to, to, to be on the ice and, and to have opportunity and to love this game the way others love this game. Maybe you can speak to, you know, his, his philosophy when it comes to representation in the game, because my understanding is that coach doesn't really see color. A lot of people think, oh, he was, his intention was to start an all black American hockey team, but really his roots really just kind of came with, look, like I want to just give the game to everybody. And maybe, I mean, you know him better than anyone. Maybe you can just speak to coach's philosophy of, of, of race in hockey and, and just what he brought to the game. Being with the team as long as I've been, I can say that, you know, I think, it, uh, you know, the mantra of the team is more, you know, anyone can play and everyone should be allowed to have the opportunity to play. And, you know, I think him, you know, he was naturally drawn, of course, to our community and to, to, to black, uh, to the black community, just because of, you know, who he is. But as you look and, and talk to and, and see the team and even the team in the past, has always been represented across the board, across the spectrum. Anybody who came to the door, who asked to, you know, to join the team. How does it work from, you know, the origin of walking into the arena and having no equipment and having no knowledge of the game at the age of five or six to leaving the program at 18? For many people, hockey is prohibitive because of the cost. Well, you know, coach has taken that on the front and saying, and, you know, so our underlying cost of play is honestly pennies on the dollar compared to some of these other programs, uh, not just in the D.C. area, but around the country and, and throughout the sport. You know, you're talking about the thousands of dollars to play organized hockey, even at the community level. Here, you know, in some respects, you may not even be talking about hundreds of dollars. You know, for those who may not be able to afford, coaches always, you know, made a way out of no way for children who are from difficult economic backgrounds to play. So, number one, the, the, the fee to come in is, is not prohibited. But again, what you said with equipment, uh, coach over the years has amassed uh, enough equipment, I think, to completely outfit an NHL division. And that's a testament to him. It really is because he saw that first and foremost, that many of these kids would not be able to, to uh, and their families would not be able to purchase that equipment. And he was the one who said, you know, if we're gonna make this work, that we have to work to make it work. And now we have it available. Every child from the skate all the way up to the helmet is provided for them and the stick too. Well, Rob, why don't we take it back to you joining the Cannons. Tell us about why you decided to get involved, how you got involved. Obviously, you have a history of, of you know, working in civil service, but, you know, and I think that obviously from your free time that, that transcended to the Cannons program, but maybe talk us about how you met Coach and, um, and why you decided to, to be part of this program. I was like, you know what? I really want to get involved with, you know, if there's a local uh, community team, I'd love to try to get involved with that. Because, you know, the game of hockey was so big for me. And I just wanted to see if there was some place, some way that I could contribute 
and, and I could uh, offer you know, my services. And so believe it or not, I just picked up the phone and called the NHL. And I you know, got to uh, someone in the NHL and, I, and I, um, I inquired, I said, hey, do you know of any community programs that are, are uh, in Washington that I might be able to volunteer for? <laughs> and the woman came back. She's like, well, there is a community team. It's called the Fort DuPont Cannons. And, and they gave me coach's telephone number. And that was uh, 1996. Again, coach being coach and being warm and welcoming to everyone uh, basically told me, great, you know, we could use another volunteer, you know, come on out. Hmm. And so I'll never forget, I came there early and, you know, introduced myself and um, he's like, great, well, do you own a pair of skates? I was like, no, I don't own a pair of skates. (laughs) And he dug into that inventory, (laughs) pulled out. a pair of skates and, and uh, gave them to me. And he said, well, I, w- I want you to go out there to the uh, opposite end of the ice where, you know, you know, we're warming up and just skate around a little bit, get your, get your feet. And, you know, no instruction, nobody out there, just go do it. And I never forget, I stepped out there and, you know, rollerblading is, is similar, but it's not the same. And um, while I didn't fall, it was definitely an eye-opening experience, but I tell you what, it was also just amazing. I mean, I used to dream of learning how to skate and playing ice hockey and to be able to step on that ice and for the first time on my own and, and skate, um, I was hooked. 25 years, man. Do you think you'd last this long? No, no, no. I mean, every day, is just, it's, it's just a blessing. It's just amazing. I mean, you know, how, how cool is it that you get a chance to sort of live out you know, one of your dreams, you know, to get out there and skate, to get out there and be a part of a sport that you embraced and loved for such a long time. But, but like those kids, that's, I guess that's, that's also why I'm so devoted because like those kids, I didn't have an opportunity. You know, I was one of the ones that was frozen out that, that did not have access as a kid. But even to get it as an adult, you know, you don't, it doesn't lose its magic. It doesn't lose its, its uh, allure. Uh, it was just as special for me as it was for the kids. I, again, I was coaching. What does it mean for someone of color, someone of a minority to see themselves accomplishing something that they'd never seen before? Like the Tony McKegney playing hockey that you saw on a magazine cover or on a poster. Uh, it's huge. You can't replace it. You know, most of these kids only see barriers because they don't see other people like them achieving what they wish they could achieve. And the, the reality is that there are people out there achieving what, what they want to achieve. There are people doing what we need to do. And I think, you know, we've proven people wrong that people of color don't like hockey or people of color may not be good at hockey or, you know, they don't embrace what, whatever, however you want to say, come to a practice with Fort DuPont and you'll be proven wrong. And there are so many people who walk in and their eyes light up and they're just like, wow, I never knew that this existed or this, this, this occurred. And I, I, over the 25 years, I've seen that happen time and time again. So I think greater exposure, which is the push behind, you know, enhancing a program like coach, uh, coaches program, like Fort DuPont and other programs, because the, the greater the exposure and awareness, the less of those barriers 
are available and kids can see it and say, if I can see it, I can, I can, I can dream it, I can achieve it, I can do it. Kim Davis is one of her lines. She kind of wanted to rebrand hockey is for everyone a little while ago. She told me, I don't think she is going to with this, but you know, one of her phrases is of course, hockey is for everyone. Hashtag of course, hockey is for exactly. Everyone. I think that's sort of the, the problem from society overall is that we put people in boxes and you know, where you live and who you are and what you like, you know, is reserved for a certain box. And, and I think that's the beauty of, I think, honestly, of, of Coach Henderson and his program is that he blew that box, you know, apart, you know, and, and, and did it in such a way where people, again, you know, leave the rink after seeing us. And they really have to think about the game of hockey and, and what they thought it was and who they thought it should be for or where it should be played or, you know, th those things. And so now it's something that you really have to think about that inclusiveness that, yeah, it is. It can be played anywhere uh, by anyone. And it should be expected that, 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 that can happen. So I wanted to, first of all, say thank you so much, Rob, for your time. You've given us more than enough, but I do have one little thing that I'd like to share with you. Um, I'm not sure if Steve's aware of this, but I think it was like probably April of 2019, before we had finished, you know, completion of our film, we were trying to organize uh, what we could do for, you know, the remaining months. We had the kids' high school graduation coming up. Um, we had an idea for the end of our movie. And our budget was becoming a large burden on both of us in, in our conversations. You know, all the grants that we had applied for, um, we were getting turned down um, for the most part. But in my life, I was going through a lot of stuff and I was having a really tough time. And uh, I tried to quit the film and Steve and I were arguing and it was really a really difficult time. And um, it was very emotional and I'm an emotional person, but I sent all the coaches a text and I said, I've got to step back from this. I think I was having a bit of a nervous breakdown or something. Um, but I was struggling with the whole process. And I sent all the coaches a, a text saying that I was going to take a break and I had to step away. And a lot of the coaches got back to me and, and said, you know, we appreciate what you've done and we hope everything's okay. It wasn't anything like an emotional text or anything like that. But uh, you just sent back a message saying, we good. And I found that to be really touching. And it actually made me feel like, you know, I am good and I can figure this out and we can figure this out and we can get this done. And I was just wondering if you remember that moment and could you elaborate on what you meant? Uh, I don't remember necessarily the, the text, but I do remember the conversations that you and I had during that time. And I will say this, you know, I appreciate your emotion now and even then. I appreciate everything that you and Steven did now, but also what you did then. I can't tell you what it meant for coach or what other people, but I can tell you what it meant for me to have people like the both of you come in and, and see the beauty and the importance of the program and want to capture it and want to capture the story of, of coach and the story of the team. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, you know, your struggles, honestly, mirror the team's struggles. It's not public and not supposed to be public, but, you know, hey, we struggle tooth and nail every year to raise that money for, for ice time and to make it easy for the kids to skate. 
but you know, somebody's got to pay for that ice time. Somebody's got to pay for, for the trips and, and the equipment and those things. And it goes beyond being a labor of love. You know, sometimes it is a struggle. Sometimes it is, you know, difficult. And I can only see it from the perspective of an assistant coach, but I do see, you know, the pressure on coach and Mrs. Dean to sort of keep the program, you know, you know, moving forward and sustainable and healthy. So your struggles mirrored our struggles. And so, you know, in a way, you guys have become more like Fort DuPont and part of that alumni and that brotherhood and sisterhood and, you know, just teammates because, you know, you were in it too. You went through the same challenges that we went through. And you, but at the same time, you hit the same highs. How many times you come into the rink, you and Steven coming down and everybody's eyes are bright, you know, and everybody has a big smile on their face because you guys are walking through the door. We can laugh and we can have those conversations. And, you know, it's just like family you haven't seen in a couple months. You guys go home, do your, do some of the work. You come back. It's like, Hey, it's like, you never, you never left. And I think, you know, that's a testament to, to, to you as well, that, that the both of you, that you guys became family, even the highs and lows. That's just part of that family. That's part of who we were. And I think that's also what, what probably it has made uh, uh, this documentary as good as it, as it, as it is. And I, I hope that people, you know, you know, feel that energy, that passion, that emotion that you guys put into it. not the team, not coach, but you guys, you guys have invested a lot into that, not just the money, but that part of it where, you know, you can get choked up over it because it was important. It was meaningful. And, and just like the program is, so, you know, I, I just see it as intertwined. I, I do. So it, it's natural. And so when I say, hey, I'm having problems, it's just like family. When I say we're good, we're, we're, we're good, man. You know, go, go fix it, do what you got to do. And hey, we're back, we're, you know, you know, get ready for the next line change. <laughs> <laughs> That's so eloquently put. And, you know, AJ mentioned just a lot of the ups and downs we had with trying to get funding. And I remember, you know, because this is a self-funded project for the most part, 95% of it is out of pocket for both of us. And, uh, but it, as AJ mentioned too, before, like it was almost appropriate that that's how it went down. And because the program itself is, is 100% blood, sweat and tears. Right. And, you know, our journey with you guys is, is, as you mentioned, Rob, very indicative of, of what the, the Canon's actual journey is. And that is a labor of love, and, you know, me and AJ, we're going to do everything it took to get this story told no matter what. And, um, you know, I'm, we're just sort of so blessed to have met you and Coach Neil, obviously, and, and everyone else that we've met along the way. And um, can't thank you enough for, for being part of this with us, this journey. And, uh, and, and just one more ask here, which is our podcast. Like I said, you guys are family and this is not a, you know, this wasn't a heavy lift at all. And, and um, we're rooting for you just as much as, as anyone else is. And I think that that's important. You know, again, you know, we're encouraging family and, and you guys encouraged us uh, uh, as, as well. I mean, it's, it, it wasn't a one-way street. It really couldn't have happened any other way. But I think, I, I think again, you know, that's the beauty of the documentary and that it shows the real, the ups and downs. I mean, not just the fight of getting people to understand that hockey is you know, for everyone and everyone should have an opportunity, but also, you know, what it takes to get opportunity, you know, fighting to get games, you know, fighting to get ice time, 
fighting to get kids through the program and to encourage families and through illness. I mean, that's what this is all about. You know, if you think about that, it makes your head spin that, wow, to endure that and to still succeed and be going for 40 years on a shoestring budget, you know, on, you know, not knowing where your games are coming from or not knowing how many kids are going to walk through the door, but, you know, putting that message out and saying, but we're still here. And regardless of those challenges, we're still going to keep moving. We're still going to keep skating. On that note, buddy, um, we want to say thank you very much for your time. Um, it was great. It was great. Again, another great therapy session for all of us. Uh, <laughs> well, my love back to, to, to the both of you guys. I'm excited, you know, about the documentary and I can't wait to see it. And, you know, anything I can do, as you all know, happy to lend a hand on my end. Thanks to Rob Primus for joining us this week on the podcast. And next week on The Godfather of Hockey, we have Brian King. We are the community. I mean, for DuPont Cannons, we are the community. So everything that we bring to the table is literally about, really about change. A lot of us come from different backgrounds. A lot of us um, bring to the table different experiences. And that's really what makes us like a, a complete unit. We're like 67 different working parts that make this vehicle move. On behalf of Steve and I, we would like to thank Michael Mayers for producing each episode of The Godfather of Hockey, John Grigg for his excellent script writing, and last but not least, Brian Young for allowing us to use his beats in this pod and in our film. Please like and subscribe to The Godfather of Hockey wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to put a face to the voices you hear on here, please follow us on our Instagram at The Cannons Documentary. I came back from a deficit, a deficit, working on my game.